Okay. It's a chore to drum and speak. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. Uh, let's just open up in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come to you now. We, bless, uh, we ask you to bless this time that we have together, God. Um, I thank you for all the people that are able to make it out. I thank you for the technology that enables us uh, to be able to speak to those who uh, either aren't comfortable or uh, can't be with us, God. And I just ask you to use this time um, and and just speak through me uh, your word, God. Um, Speak through the music um, and speak through the time of communion we'll have later, God. And I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever gotten yourself into a situation where you made a bad or wrong decision and it just seemed like everything continued to fall apart? Most of us don't have to think long or hard to come up with this type of situation. We've either, either experienced it or we've heard of somebody who's gone through it. The situation is so common that even Hollywood seems to draw upon these feelings and emotions that we have. One of the more comical ones is a scene from the Mr. Bean movie in the late 90s. In the movie, Mr. Bean is sent from England to the U.S., where he is to deliver a very expensive painting. In one of the scenes, Mr. Bean is left alone with the multi-million dollar piece of art. While expecting this art piece very closely, Mr. Bean sneezes on it. In a panic, he whips out his handkerchief and begins to blot the painting in an attempt to clean it, uh, to clean it off only to realize his pen has exploded inside of his pocket, soaking the handkerchief with blue ink, which is now on the painting. As he continues to panic over the blue blotch on the face of the subject of the painting, Mr. Bean proceeds to remove the painting from the wall and scrub it uh, with his shirt, only to scrub so hard that the painting ends up falling out of the frame. Knowing that he needs to do something to fix the painting, Mr. Bean rather creatively moves the painting from the showroom to a maintenance closet where he can work on it closely. Knowing he needs to do something to fix the painting, he takes a can of paint thinner off of the shelf in the maintenance closet. He applies some to a rag and begins to wipe the stain, hoping that something will happen. To his amazement, it seems to work. The blue stain is wiping off, and Mr. Bean grins ear to ear while scrubbing it and admiring the work. All is good as he takes the can of paint thinner back and places it back on the shelf. That is, until he turns back around. Upon turning back around to look at and gaze upon the freshly cleaned painting, he sees the area he's just applied the paint thinner to is bubbling up. The paint is melting. In a fit of panic, Mr. Bean attempts to wipe the painting again, but this time he just smudges everything. After scrubbing away at the portrait, the camera shows the painting, now just a large grayish smudge right smack dab in the middle where a face should be. Mr. Bean is distraught, and he doesn't know what to do and how he can possibly fix this situation that he's brought upon himself. While this is Hollywood's comical take on the situation that's resolved in 120 minutes, the human race has found itself in a much more serious and seemingly ever-deteriorating situation. The Bible and the story of humanity begins with Adam and Eve living in complete and unimaginable paradise. 
A place where there's no death, no suffering, no sickness. Complete joy and contentment abound. Not only were Adam and Eve living in wonderful surroundings, but they were also in effortless and constant communion with God. As C.S. Lewis puts it, their love for God came without painful effort. This love and devotion that they had for God was effortless. It came as natural as breathing. But their stay in splendor didn't last. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 19 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that, God had, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called upon the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. When the Lord God said to the woman, uh, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. You shall desire, uh, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all of in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. In Genesis chapter 3, we begin by reading a conversation between the serpent and Eve. The serpent twists God's words. And Eve, instead of correcting the serpent, 
creates her own modification of God's word, which both overemphasized God's strictness and softened the resulting consequences. Notice in verse 3 where Eve says, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve neglects to specify that it was only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and instead states that the prohibition is for the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Eve also makes the statement that they aren't allowed to touch it. This isn't something that God ever said. God never said that an inadvertent touch of this tree or the fruit would result in any lasting consequences. Finally, Eve leaves out the certainty of the consequences for eating the fruit. Death. She says, uh, she says, lest you die, instead of the statement of certainty which God uses, you shall surely die. The serpent capitalizes on Eve's dilution and modification of God's word and uses it to twist further, perverting the motives of God and his character. Satan casts a light on God and his character that God is merely using it as a scare tactic. That the scare tactic of death is just to keep Adam and Eve down and in their place. The serpent convinced Eve that God was cruel and jealous that both Adam and Eve may get too, uh, may get too powerful and rise too far for God. Nothing could be farther from the truth, though. After all, God had created everything for Adam and Eve. He had given them rulership over earth, and he had given them each other. Eve's own erring modification of God's word and Satan's blatant lies had sold her in taking and eating of the fruit that she was forbidden to do. Chapter 3 goes on uh, describing Eve taking the fruit and passing it to Adam. Interestingly enough, the language of these verses seemed to suggest that Adam was right there with Eve in some capacity while she was having this conversation with the serpent. When it comes to the account of the fall, I've heard this idea that Eve was alone and after some conversation with the serpent, came running back with the fruit, convincing Adam uh, to eat it through some sort of discussion or trickery. The truth of the matter, though, is much more dismal. You see, Adam was passively watching this whole interaction with the serpent that his wife was having. Not only this, but Adam wasn't tricked by what the serpent was saying. Many commentators conclude that the process of naming all of the animals, which was a very detailed and intellectually demanding process, had sharpened Adam's powers of discernment. In the words of St. Augustine, Adam's natural mental or sorry, Adam's mental powers surpassed those of most brilliant philosophers as much as the speed of a bird surpasses a tortoise. This truth that Adam knew everything that the serpent was saying uh, was a lie is even biblically backed up by the Apostle Paul, who in 1 Timothy says that while the woman was deceived, Adam was not. Knowing full well what was going on, Adam sinned willingly out of his own self-interests. He had heard everything the serpent had said, he knew it was a lie, and he watched his wife take the fruit, eat of it, saw nothing happened immediately, 
And so he took part in disobeying God. At that moment, uh, both Adam and Eve fell from their innocence and intimacy with God to a place of guilt and separation. From that point on, they would have to work to love God and they would have to work to love each other. It wouldn't come as effortlessly as it once did. Fear and guilt gripped their hearts. In a panic and in hearing the presence of God, both Adam and Eve attempted to hide. Uh, Results from their actions of eating the fruit, both had this delusion that they could hide themselves from what they had done and from God, who is always present. This delusion isn't one of just Adam and Eve, though, in the immediate aftermath of their disobedience, but one Christians all throughout history and even today struggle with. We think, like Jonah did, that we can run away from God and somehow hide from his presence. We think that we can separate or or compartmentalize the Christian us from the worldly us. Like a father calling out to his child of whose feet he can see underneath the curtain, God called out to Adam, knowing full well where he was. After coming out from hiding, Adam's response included no admission of wrongdoing, but instead it was an expression of shame and fear and self-interest. Adam was focused on himself and not on the sin that he had committed against God. Verse 12 says, The man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam points fingers all around. Adam basically says, it's the woman's fault. She gave it to me. And technically speaking, God, you gave me the woman. Adam takes a page from Satan's book and implies that a better God wouldn't have put him with this woman. God then moves on to question Eve. And much like Adam, she also doesn't take responsibility for her actions. Eve says, the serpent tricked her. Both point, finger, uh, boy, both point fingers at others and instead don't look at themselves. Both show no remorse for their actions. Nowadays, it seems as though victimhood has become the refuge of everyone, whether you're famous and rich or you're poor and destitute or you're somewhere right smack dab in the middle. It's not my fault, we say. I'm the product of my family history, my upbringing, my circumstances, my proclivities, and my weaknesses. It's just not my fault. One thing we are sure, though, is that it isn't our fault. Though it seems to be an ever-common refuge of excuse today, the fantasy land of victimhood goes all the way back to the beginning of human history. Adam was convinced. It's not my fault. It's the woman. And God, you have some of the blame too because you put that woman with me. And Eve was convinced it wasn't her fault. The snake, it tricked me. It's to blame. After questioning both Adam and Eve, God curses the serpent. He curses both the object, the serpent itself, and that which controlled it, Satan. 
Interestingly enough, there are only two places in the Bible where God himself verbalizes a curse, of which this is one. In all the other places in the Bible, men invoke curses uh, in God's name. The fact that God verbalizes this curse means that its consequences and results are completely certain. Verse 14 to 15 said, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, God's curse to the serpent was that it would signify the most vile and hated. Many commentators believe that the statement that it should go on its belly is not a reference to the fact that it might have once walked or traveled upright, but rather that, it, uh, that the way in which it moves was given a new symbolic meaning. Additionally, the serpent eating dust would signify the humiliation And indeed, many times throughout the scripture, the the image of the serpent is used to invoke this idea of, of humiliation and being the lowest of the low. God then moves on to curse Satan. However, in this curse, there's also a word of grace for mankind. For the early church, verse 15 statement was viewed as the first gospel or otherwise known as the Proto-Evangelium, a reference to Christ who would come and crush the head of Satan. This was the idea, uh, this was the main idea that was meant by these verses up until the so-called modern uh, biblical study, when some posited that the reference was a general one that meant humanity would be in general conflict with Satan and that humanity would ultimately win in the end. This, however, most likely is not a correct interpretation. The Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translated these verses as referring to a single individual. Given that the Septuagint was written around 250 BC, well before Christ, its writers wouldn't have had a Christian presupposition in it, and took this statement to refer Uh, to a single individual who would destroy Satan. Here we have, all the way back in Genesis, God alluding to the fact that the sin problem will be fixed and that evil will be defeated. This interestingly interwoven grace continues in God's judgment as he addresses both Eve and Adam. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. God states that uh, that in the joy of childbirth, there will be great pain, both physical and emotional. Not only is the actual event of uh, childbirth extremely painful, but the act of mothering can also be equally as painful at times. I'm sure any mother here can attest to that. Additionally, the marital relationship will experience pain. 
Conflict would exist in the relationship because of the desire of Eve to rule over Adam. Verse 17 to 19, and, Adam, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I, command, I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because, you, uh, because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread uh, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God's judgment on Adam came because he gave up his headship and his leadership. Adam sat there and listened to the conversation his wife had with the serpent. He sat there in silence, knowing that what the serpent was saying was wrong. He sat there in silence as his wife manipulated and twisted God's word. He sat there in silence as his wife took and ate of the fruit he knew that he wasn't supposed to. And then he did the same thing. Adam had full knowledge of what he was doing was wrong, and yet, in his own self-interest, he did it anyways. Much like Eve, pain would be attributed to one of the most intimate details of his life. Work and provision. Adam took great joy in taking care of the garden and the creatures in it, and now that very activity that brought him so much joy was going to bring him pain. He had done it in such an effortless way, but now he would have to work and labor. Much like in the movie scene I described at the beginning, things just continue to deteriorate. As human history continues on, the results of Adam and Eve's actions and the resulting consequences and judgment uh, would reverberate and continue to do so until today. When Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, they were excited. They had faith that God would indeed fulfill the promise he had made with one of these offspring. That one of them would defeat Satan. However, it didn't work like that. Throughout Genesis and the Old Testament, we read about situations and the results of the sin which Adam and Eve perpetrated in the garden. We also uh, read, we also though read about the coming offspring of Eve that eventually comes is bruised by Satan, but who ultimately defeats and crushes death for those who put their trust in him. Unifying the whole of Scripture and God's redemptive plan. God pours into sinners the life of his Son through the resurrection. Christ, being the second and perfect Adam, creates a new humanity, which we heard read about in 1 Corinthians. One which, when we put our trust in the work accomplished on the cross, can move, we can move through death into new life and exaltation in God's sanctuary, just like where Adam and Eve had begun. As one commentator puts it so eloquently, as Christians, our faith is not something new. It was not some first century notion that by chance became popular in the ancient world. No. Rather, the Messiah was prophesied, uh, prophesied at the beginning of primeval history, and the hope of his coming was wonderfully preserved through the primeval and patriarchal 
history, and thus became a unifying message of the Old Testament. For us, Christ is everything. He is everything. 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 